You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Kerry Anna Nadeau, co-founder and co-CEO at Loop. And in this episode, we'll talk about InsureTech and specifically how Kerry Anna managed to start a company in insurance technology while having not a huge background in that field. So Kerry, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Loop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hopefully that introduction that we're going to talk about insurance isn't too off-putting to your audience. I think insurance is this really fascinating, new, exciting domain that VCs are interested in. You're seeing a lot of really amazing entrepreneurs move into. There's a lot of IPOs and exits happening in the insure tech space. So hopefully as an attractive, you know, hook rather than, oh my God, I don't want to be stuck talking to this person <laughs> Christmas party. Um, but yeah, my name is Carrie Ann Nadeau. I am the co-founder and co-CEO of a company called Loop. And what Loop does is it tries to reimagine what auto insurance will be like in the future that is more data-driven and more AI-driven. So we've gone through the way that a traditional sort of legacy carrier, all the names you might know, Geico, Progressive, Allstate, USAA, we've gone through the way that they've priced customers and asked in what ways are the rating criteria that they use to give you a price structurally biased and perpetuating inequality. So we've gone through and identified a number of factors like your credit score, your educational attainment level, your occupation, all of which can be used if, say, you are a lower credit, lower educated, so you may only have a high school diploma, uh, and you may work in a blue-collar job. We don't believe that those factors are particularly predictive of whether you're going to be involved in a car crash. So we've actually gone through and removed those factors and instead replaced them with this really cool mobile app that tracks when and where you drive and contextualizes where you drive with information about where it's unsafe. So we've collected hundreds of millions of car crashes across the United States, currently across 27 states, and we've mapped them. So we know if you're speeding or if you're hard braking on some of the most dangerous roads in the US. And in doing so, we're able to better measure the risk. We actually measure what matters. We actually predict who's likely to be involved in a car crash and make their risk match the rate that we price at. At the same time, we're actually delivering that information back to the consumer so that a consumer can make better choices for themselves. If your high school student is taking to the road for the first time, you can advise them, you know, take this exit instead of that exit, or these roads I don't want you to be driving on at two in the morning. Um, There's all sorts of safety insights that we believe that as an insurance carrier, we're responsible to our customers and hopefully helping them become more safe, not just be there when things go wrong, but actually help prevent things from going wrong to begin with. Um, So Loop is just launched. Uh, We'll be live in the state of Texas this year, probably Q2, Q3 this year. Um, So if you're listening in the state of Texas, this will be a product that you can buy very soon. Nice. That's a great introduction. Absolutely loved it. And yes, thanks for fixing me in terms of uh, we are not going to be talking about the boring insurance. We're going to talk about the fun (laughs) part of the insurance. 
And first question, actually, before we jump into discussion of insurance, uh, is the thing that I mentioned that I saw while I was preparing for this interview just like 10 minutes before it, which is that you are the co-CEO at Loop. So how does it work? How is it the co-CEO position work? Yeah, so we're super intentional about setting up our company with co-CEOs. My co-founder and co-CEO is named John Henry, um, and he comes from a discipline and a background of being just an amazing marketer, brand builder. We call him a social engineer. He knows how to build a brand and have conversations with consumers that build authentic, resonant messaging around a mission. And our mission as a company is to reduce the injustice and inequality, create a more equitable, fairly priced auto insurance product. And myself, I'm a bit of a technical co-founder. So I have all of the credentials. I'm an MIT graduate. I work for the Brookings Institution, the Urban Institute. I bring this really deep expertise in technical proficiency when it comes to rating and the statistical algorithms that go into your price. That's really my domain expertise. And I think to be really successful in insurance, you need founders with both of these skill sets. So it was important to us as we're having conversations with the many partners and our customers that are required to launch a business like Loop, that we have two of the best possible people at the very top of the organization able to make executive decisions um, with their domain expertise. We sort of internally stay out of each other's lanes and, and defer to our own expertise when the occasion arises where, you know, the statistics is outweighing and the importance of the numbers not lying outweighs a decision sometimes. And in other times, you know, what we're hearing from the customer and how we want to build a product to resonate with a customer outweighs in other times. And so it's a it's a balance uh, of those two things, but it really gives us an edge because we have two people that are really competent leaders uh, that can both make executive decisions in those domains, which are really important for being successful in insurance. Nice. That's a really interesting use case. I've never seen co-CEOs before in my oh, entire it's life. it's common. It's Seriously? super common. Yeah, I think the uh, heads of Warby Parker are co-CEOs. There's a lot of financial services firms that are co-CEOs as well. It's pretty common in financial services just because there's so much to do, <laughs> so many players to interact with, so many contracts to sign, so many uh, legal requirements uh, to actually get to be an insurance company. And so um, it's it's quite common in financial services. Nice. That's really cool. Again, learning something new on my own podcast every single time I record an episode. So <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that. So, yeah, now let's talk about insurance. First question is about how investors look at your backgrounds. So the first thing that investors usually do when they evaluate a startup, they're like, okay, does the team actually qualify to solve this particular problem? And usually they just dig into their background to see if it's relevant to the problem that they're trying to solve. In your case, it seems like you don't have much of a background in insurance. So the question is, how did investors react to that? Yeah, uh, well, I'll correct the record for a little bit that I have spent five years in working in insurance, but I don't come from a big name insurer. I've never worked for Progressive or Allstate. I've never been sort of worked up through the institution itself. I actually think that's an asset for us because we're able to see and understand how the institution has operated, how insurance carriers work, and identify the flaws where we can do a better job. 
Um, a lot of what we do is driven by data, big data, massive amounts of information. We get like 40,000 crashes a month in the state of Texas. If you think about that, there are 40,000 car crashes. There's way too many car crashes. There's way too many people at risk on the roads. Um, but it also fuels a really powerful engine of technology internally for organization to understand again and contextualize drivers' behaviors, but also learn what are the important contextual factors that end up causing a crash. It's not just the person's hands on the wheels. And, you know, sometimes it is drunk driving, distracted driving, uh, teen driving without a lot of experience. You might weigh the person quite a bit. But we think the very big missing component is this idea of contextualizing where that driver is actually driving. And if you're on a road that's super dangerous and you're behaving poorly, our data and internal engine is able to compute how important is that and how should your rate reflect that risk. So unlike a traditional carrier's approach that it relies on a really structured set of rules that have been established for hundreds of years, we sort of don't have the same handcuffs. We have a little bit more freedom in our approach to actually ask what rules we want to follow. What rules do we think are important to continue perpetuating? So for example, we might want to remove something like credit score from your auto price. Today, credit, zip code, income, these sorts of factors account for about 80% of your price. And it's no surprise that people of color end up paying 50 to 70% more on average than people who are white, even when uh, their equivalents have DUI convictions. I mean, it's just an extreme consequence of some of the structural questions that you're asked in the process of obtaining an insurance quote. So we're able to have that flexibility to say, is this the way that we want to do business? Is this reflective of the data that we're collecting? Because the data don't lie. And how do we want to be a part of designing what the future will look like, even if that's harder, even if that means we have to invent, even if that means we have to apply creative solutions to problems that have already been solved for hundreds of years? That's what we're taking on. So nice. I think it's a really great asset to actually come from outside of the industry, but have very specific skills that are relevant to the mm -hmm. industry that give us that advantage. Um, I will mention though, when it comes to investors, myself, I'm a female tech founder. I don't know that there's a lot of us out there in the world. We've mostly found each other uh, through the underground network of female tech founders. Um, <laughs> My partner and co-founder is a Dominican-American male. And so we don't look like the traditional financial services employee or entrepreneur. Uh, most of the businesses like Root, like Lemonade, like Hippo, no fault to their own, but you've seen these very big companies grow and be led predominantly by white men. And I think that gives us a really strategic advantage. Frankly, we've also found investors that believe that this is an advantage for us, that we have different life experiences. We've perceived the world differently. We know what it's like to be without a car and need to lug groceries over our shoulders in big bags, how difficult it is to go lose your car in a car crash, not be able to bring your kid to childcare, which then affects your ability to work 
or your ability to access jobs to begin with that may be farther afield. And so I think we have a deep empathy for our consumer and their lived experience in a way that those who came before us maybe were too indoctrinated in the way things have always been done and not have personally confronted some of the problems that we're aiming to solve at Loop. Nice, perfect answer. And now let's actually go to the major topic of the entire podcast, which is sure. the fundraising. Your fundraising process is definitely impressive. So you started Loop only six months ago and you already raised $3.3 million. And that's 100% not the standard case. So can you tell us a little more about that process? How did that happen? Yeah, and I never want to call it an overnight success because that is never the truth. And if any entrepreneur tells you that, they're full of shit. <laughs> um, so I would say <laughs> the idea for Loop really started about five years ago. And we as uh, I as a founder started a company called Ometry before Loop, my first business. It was a B2B data company. So we were actually selling insights about road safety to city government city of Chicago, LA, DC, we were all over the United States helping city governments actually prioritize their traffic safety initiatives so they were spending public dollars efficiently to reduce crashes and save lives. That helped us build a core technology that gave us a hard edge when going to investors. We were able to demonstrate mathematically, quantitatively, we're right, this works. Um, and we were able to essentially situate our superior technology and the importance of evolving an industry that hasn't really evolved for 25 years as an opportunity to apply data, to apply AI, and to apply it in an ethical way that would resonate in today's modern market. So when the George Floyd events happened, that was actually a big moment, especially for my co-founder, who's a person of color, Dominican-American male, to say, we can't rely on the Bill Gates of the world or the Elon Musks of the world or even the LeBrons of the world and these celebrity sort of folks who are saying, who are stepping up and saying like, there is institutional racism and it is institutionalized by the systems like financial services, real estate, banking, and most certainly insurance. And so that was really a compelling factor that then helped us take what was a B2B technology and resurface it, reposition the entire technology to go direct to consumers. We wanted to lead that change. We wanted to be at the helm of saying, we're going to take on this problem because we're the right people to do it. We can't wait for others. And so when we set out to raise money, um, who was probably August, uh, we gave ourselves, you know, the reasonable expectations. This is going to take a couple months. And it was a hard fought slog. As a founder myself, this was my first time raising money uh, of, from venture capital, from institutional investors. John Henry has experience raising venture capital previously. He worked at or was a part of the founding team of Harlem Capital, which is a a venture capital firm itself raised a $40 million fund with institutional investors from KKR and TPG and others. Um, so he had a lot of experience about what this process would be like. Even then, it was hard. Um, it, what, I, I don't know how to describe how hard it was other than to say that like, we started off with a very clear understanding of what we were setting out to do 
and finding the right partners for us. You know, having enough conversations to be able to say and to be a little bit selective in our process, this is a good investor for us. They believe in our mission. That's why Backstage Capital, for example, Arlen Hamilton is on our cap table because she understands that you need to invest in people of color to begin to put capital into changing some of the systemic bias. We wanted InsurTech investors. That's why Uprising is on our cap table. Um, and concrete rows and those that are interested in financial services where they see a significant, really big market opportunity. Insurance is a big segment, right? And if you understand what you're doing in the segment, you realize how archaic it is and how ripe for innovation, ripe for disruption it actually is. We wanted some InsurTech investors that had that experience. And then we found a great lead investor in Freestyle Capital, which is um important to me from day one, we sort of synced on culture. And I think that that gets us the most excited that, you know, the biggest check in our round really came from somebody that we synced with personally. Um, the founder, Dave Samuel, is a MIT alum, you know, wild kind of, if you follow his Instagram, he's he's very engaged on Instagram, posting funny videos and out adventuring in the world. Uh, CTO, who is the former CTO of Burning Man and others that just sort of understood the importance of hacking the rules. People who were like looking strategically for people that could reimagine the rules and reset society in a way because they're looking to make very big bets. We were raising a three, as you mentioned, three and a quarter million dollars in our seed round. We needed investors who saw this as a very big opportunity and were as ambitious and as mission aligned as we were in, you know, jumping on behind us or to push us and raise us up. So I think it was a long process. We spoke to over 80 investors. We, over a four month period, it had its ups and downs, it had its highs and lows, it had its term sheets come and go. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what ultimately helped us close the round was finding investors that really believed in us, synced with us as people, and not necessarily because we're credentialed and we have experience raising capital, we have MIT degrees, but because they saw the opportunity as one that was a problem that was really worthy of being solved. And that's all you can really ask for as a company is to find an investor like that. Right. And that's very cool. Personally, I love Backstage Capital. And by the way, for those who don't know, they just raised, I believe, like over a million dollars on Republic, which was, I think, the very first uh, crowdfunded fund fundraiser in the entire history of VC. So Arlen is just doing some crazy, uh, very innovative stuff there. So, yes, definitely follow yeah. their follow them, they do create a lot of cool stuff and they do have awesome ideas. So congrats first of all on bringing them on your cap table. That's just a huge deal and yeah. good luck. They're, they're great partners. Um, yeah, I agree. And I hope great things are coming to Arlen because she's, 100%. Right. she's right. It's just going to take a while for it to bake. So we actually think about being a great, you know, we try to, um, of course, you're trying to return capital to your investors. But for Arlen and Backstage Capital specifically, we want to be a gold star in her portfolio. We want to be a company that she can say, like, she invested in us early. She was one of the first checks in. She was the one of the, the checks with the most conviction early on. And, like, 
part of what inspires us is actually making Arlen proud and actually, you know, celebrating what she's doing, which is really important, valuable, and going to really be successful over time. I think great things and big things are coming to Backstage Capital. They already are. They absolutely are. And yes, I think so too. So that's just a great bond there between the investor and the portfolio companies. That's how all of those bonds should work. Mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> we spent too much time talking about Backstage Capital. Let's move on and see how you found others. So you mentioned, you know, that's of course, fundraising is a numbers game, but you were also choosing some specific investors that you felt are good for you. So how were you finding those people? How how did you track them? Was it mainly on uh, Crunchbase that you saw their names or was it on Twitter that you saw their posts and felt like they might resonate with your idea? Or how, how did you find those uh, VCs? Yeah, so I think social media is an important means of accessing people. It really does democratize access. Uh, you can reach out on social media and DM an investor, and they are very active in that sphere. Uh, you can also build your own personal persona, much in the way John Henry has done. He has a very significant Instagram following. I have a very significant LinkedIn following, just given our domains. Um, but I think that the most important thing that we did was develop a network of people around us that are entrepreneurs as well that are on this journey. So folks like Song Lorong, uh, who just raised a Series B for his business, you know, just a couple steps ahead of us in the fundraising journey that could make that pass backwards. Um, being a female founder, being a person of color founder, that network is there to support one another because we know that the door is just cracked slightly open and the more people we can get inside of the castle the more power we will control and the more um, of the world we will design in our vision and so i think that actually the biggest piece of advice i can give to other founders that at some point envision raising capital in the future is finding other ceos of other companies befriending them authentically learning from them asking for help, asking for advice. Um, another Craig Lewis of GigWage is another who um, ultimately ended up introducing us to Freestyle Capital, which was our, our lead investor. So it actually is, I think, the people who are on the ground, uh, who are also CEOs of other companies that are some of the most successful facilitative introductions you can possibly gain. And I think as a effort for myself going into series A coming up soon. We're already thinking ahead, already starting to line up conversations with investors nice. to know the next stage. Um, it's finding other CEOs that have been through that process already and, and really building a network of support because it only becomes a narrower and narrower sort of needle you're trying to thread and a small group of people who have been through it that can... Um, both sniff out your bullshit, right? Because there's some <laughs> bullshit uh, that I think every founder gets away with that VCs maybe don't see. Um, but also who can say like, that's gold. That's that's gold. And see it when they see it authentically want to refer you because they want you to be successful. They want other people in their ecosystem and environment to come up with them. Uh, I always say like, 
one of my personal goals, and I share this with my team who are big Formula One fans, um, that I want to be yacht adjacent at Monaco. However you get there, however I get there, we're both going to be independently successful in our lives and help each other get to a place where we can be sipping champagne on the back of a yacht, watching Formula One race go by, and just cheers to you in that moment. I envision that as my destination. And so it's really just a uh, building that ecosystem of people around you that you want to be yacht adjacent with. <laughs> you want to be yacht adjacent. <laughs> I yeah, love that. Be yacht adjacent at Monaco. <laughs> like, if anybody has a yacht that's currently and they can expedite our path to that, all the better. But um, no, that's our goal. One day. That's absolutely wonderful. So speaking of finding these kind of people, and also you mentioned in the beginning of the episode, the underground network of female tech founders, I even wrote down that mm -hmm. quote, because I loved it as well. So where do you find those people? Is it some Slack groups? Is it again, Twitter, uh, some LinkedIn groups, some WhatsApp groups? I don't know where you find yeah. those people. Uh, well, in insurance, I can share specifically that you go to a tech conference and there's like five of you and you can see each other across the room because you're one of the only people not wearing khaki pants, a white shirt and a blue jacket. The reality is, is that insurance in general is one of the widest industries out there and it is one of the male heavy industries out there. I literally have an advisor. She's a innovation officer within one of the, the major uh, insurance companies based out of Hartford. And she, the first time I met her was wearing a hot pink blazer and I was wearing like a zebra print or something like that. We saw each other from across the room and that's how we made friends. It's literally such a small community that we stick out like sore thumbs. It's hard not to find us. And I'll say that once you do network into a few people, um, for example, Kate Terry of Surround Insurance is somebody I reach out to on the low all the time to ask questions, you know, just get her perspective. She just raised her Series A. She's launching a very similar business, an insurance business that bundles home and other coverages. Um, she's able to sort of tell me what's up because she's been in those rooms before and share it back mm -hmm. to me. And then we found out that we were connected to another woman, Gloria, who just launched a commercial auto product. And we didn't even know we knew each other, but the world is just so small that we find each other through just being the only ones in the room. And I think that that's a really, you know, if you're going to a network event and you're the only woman in the room, or you're one of a few people that look like you, actually developing a small coalition of people that um, understand that experience and are just rooting for each other is a really powerful way to build relationships. You have a commonality between you from the jump. Like if you need a tampon at an insurance conference, like I got you, but I'm probably one of five people in the room that can help. Right. So it's kind of like that. The community is so small that you just can't not find each other in insurance. Um, another is Christy Horvath at Wagmo, right? I can almost name all of them that I know, um, but I would also encourage those that are coming up to reach out, male or female. I have a good friend, Dirk, who founded a company called Parento, paid parental leave insurance. Another really uh, helpful product for women in particular, though it was founded by a man, it is, it is designed with the vision of parents who are 
uh, taking off from work and employers buying uh, an insurance product to essentially account for those situations where um, uh, an employee has to leave uh, to care for their child. And so it's such a small community of people that it's hard not to find each other. And if there are others that are coming up, like just DM us, we'll loop you into the circle. It's It's a small but loyal group that help each other out. This is really cool. And at the same time, it's kind of sad that you can just find each other in the room. But one quick follow up question on this. Right now, everything is online, so there are no physical rooms. How mm -hmm. can people find like minded people now when everything is online? Yeah, I love podcasts. I'm a big fan of going on podcasts, which is ironic because I didn't even just realize that <laughs> I was on a podcast. Um, but, you know, sending your message out into the world and creating a platform and, and like sort of a sphere, thank you, a sphere that other people can be brought into, right? Putting your position out there. I'm a person that cares deeply about ethical AI. I develop content. I share content about ethical AI, about how we can restructure the future. If we know the rules, we can redesign them in our vision. We shouldn't just let algorithms decide for us because all algorithms are built by humans. We need to be back at the beginning and design how these algorithms should form, how they should run and what consequence they have on real people and specifically people who have been treated negatively by the by those same algorithms previously. So I put out a lot of content around that. And now I find a community of people that are magnetically sort of drawn to me because they want to participate in that dialogue. And so I think you can't just wait to find like a, a LinkedIn group or a, a chat room like Clubhouse is cool. But if you really want to build relationships with people, you have to give them something to link on to, something that they're interested in you and what you know and what you care about um, to engage with you. So I think just developing content, creating a voice for yourself, projecting out into the world, others will respond. Perfect. And very optimistic on this optimistic note, we are moving on to the last question of today's episode. And the question is the call to action. So, Carrie, what do you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Yeah, I want you, and this is so awful. Well, two things. One, I want you to go to loopinsure.com. I want you to sign up for our mm -hmm. waitlist, particularly if you're in the state of Texas, because right now we're doing a lot of user research, understanding what people want, what people need um, in our go-to-market state, where they're at, what kind of consumer really resonates with a product that's built to be more inclusive, um, doesn't include credit, doesn't include education, doesn't include income. It's also one of the first companies to not give a shit about what gender you are or whether you want to specify your gender at all. It is super modern and super cool. So I want people to sign up so that we could get to know you a little bit better. And then the second thing more philosophically, I think I would leave a listener with is to actually self-assess our lives and ask um, the same questions that Jeff Bezos wrote in his retirement letter, like, this is day one. This is day one of a new journey. What will that journey be for you? What are you starting to build today? What rules, I'll put that in quote, do you live by that you don't want to live by anymore? What kind of product could you create if you weren't hamstrung by the way things have always been done? And that sort of creative energy, we've all got a little bit of downtime during COVID. You know, it's cold outside, it's snowing, we're all stuck inside, I'm running out of books to read, Amazon can't deliver them fast enough. 
I think it's a really great time and opportunity to find opportunity in crisis and ask ourselves, like, how are we going to come out of this as different people that are ready to take on some of the very big challenges our country faces following the pandemic? And so it's something that I needed to do during this pandemic. It inspired me to launch Loop. And I hope I can share some of that inspiration, encourage others to go through that same self-assessment and journey as I did, because Loop's awesome. Loop's a car insurance product that you're going to be able to, you know, it's going to change the, the entire industry of car insurance. But there's so much more work to be done based on other people's expertise and other people's lens of the world. And I just want that, like, as I mentioned before, that castle that we we kind of snuck into. We're inside. We're looking around right now because we just raised our seed round. But I want more people to come in behind me, even if we need to Trojan horse them into the building like we got to get to work. Mm -hmm. Nice. I love that call to action. And I'll make sure to leave all the links mentioned in the episode, specifically link Cheers. to the loop and link to Carrie's LinkedIn and also to Twitter if you have one, which I'm pretty sure you do. Yep. Yes. And to Twitter as well. And maybe to something else. I'll have to see that. Uh, but yeah, my call to action is going to be follow Carrie's call to action and also check out the description of this episode. I'll leave all the links there. So check them out and as usually have a good day.